CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, December 21st starts right now. On today's program, Ben welcomes back In These Times web editor and huge Bulls fan, Miles Komplas. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, you have questions about what's going on in this big, beautiful city, you need to head to ChicagoReader.com because you can find all the answers. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J O R. V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Eviction City Thursday, and here's why. Well, it's time for another Michael Girardi update. Uh, I cover the Michael Girardi beat uh, for the Ben Jarofsky show. Michael Girardi, of course, is the rock and rolling uh, lefty from the southwest side of Chicago. He's probably the leftiest guy uh, in Beverly. And now that my distinguished guest, Miles Conflassen, has moved out of Beverly, it would have been uh, Miles uh, and Michael, neck and neck. But Miles has moved on uh, from his family home in Beverly. I don't, I don't know where he, live. he lives now, somewhere in the city. Uh, and uh, so my, Michael's left behind as the one true lefty in Beverly. And uh, so I get a big kick uh, out of uh, Michael Girardi reading the Sunday paper. Now, follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, once a week, the Girardi family in, in Beverly gets the Chicago Tribune uh, delivered to them. And that is when Michael Girardi comes face to face with mainstream media. And I have to laugh. Michael, I've been reading it my whole life. I've been reading mainstream media since before you were born. All right. Just want you to know. I feel your pain. Anyway, it's really funny because what he'll do is he'll take a picture of whatever article has set him off. Uh, send me the picture and then like do these little short bits that I'm not quite sure what he's getting at, but I know he's getting at something. So he'll have a picture of some particularly annoying part of the article. Uh, and in this case, he'll write, Oh no. <laughs> oh no. So I'll write back. You got to give me a little more Michael than, Oh no. And so then he, uh, he weighs in. So this particular article has to do with the fact that Cook County evictions are back to levels of 2019. Uh, there was a pause in convictions, uh, convictions, <laughs> excuse me, uh, that's Freudian, evictions, uh, landlords evicting their tenants. Uh, and uh, there's been a pause uh, in evictions during the COVID years. Now it's picking up again. And so the Tribune is writing an analysis. Uh, and in writing that analysis, they, of course, playing to uh, both sides, uh, they quote a few um, like public interest lawyer types, uh, and then they quote uh, a landlord. <laughs> and it was the landlord who uh, really set uh, Michael off. So here we are. Here's a Michael Girardi riff, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so the first thing uh, he wrote was, oh, no, in regards just to uh, the story itself. And he wrote, glancing at the front page might take you back to about 15 years ago when you would see Tom Dart's handsome smile as he shows up to take credit for refusing to evict poor people from their rental homes and throw them out in the street. Where's Tom and his million-dollar smile? They ain't here. This can't be good. The Tom Dart he's alluding to, of course, is the Cook County Sheriff, who I believe is also a resident of the Beverly area. Hope he and Michael don't bump into each other at the local grocery store. Uh, and uh, it's true. Tom Dart for a while said it, the humane thing was not to have his sheriffs uh, – evict people no i guess it's the it's okay now to evict people at this point uh let's get back into the business of evicting people then there's a photo of a uh a very smug looking landlord 
uh, and to which Michael responds, oh, I see a photo of a dapper, nerdy guy. He must be the lawyer fighting for the people. Let's see what he has to say. <laughs> and then it turns out that this landlord is an attorney for landlords uh, who owns buildings throughout Chicago, to which Michael says he's a fucking landlord and an attorney who represents other landlords. Wait, he looks so smug in that photo. He must have a heart of gold. He's doing the right thing, I bet. A real class trader. With those glasses, you know you can trust him. Quote, there are tens of jobs out there. People are choosing not to get them, is the select quote from this particular landlord attorney, to which Michael writes, you know who also chooses not to get a job? An attorney for landlords who owns buildings throughout Chicago. I don't think any law passed by the people's representatives in elected government should ever, ever benefit someone like him. If it's giving him an entitlement mentality, instead, we should be encouraging him to get a job so he can benefit from the dignity of the world. As far as we could tell, <laughs> land, attorneys for landlords have made 100% of their income by exploiting people who are at least poor enough to be unable to own their homes. You know, this gets at something. Um, Michael uh, Girardi has a big heart, uh, and he cares for people who are down and out. Uh, and uh, if you're about to lose your home, uh, you are uh, just down and out. Uh, and I would think a compassionate society would look upon people in that situation with compassion. And Michael agrees with me. I think Miles Conflasso, my distinguished guest, is on deck agrees with me as well. I don't think we're in a particularly compassionate time. Uh, in society, and that's putting it mildly, uh, not just here in the uh, city of Chicago, but nationwide. Miles and I will be talking about the alt-right and how it's moving forward. It's probably further right than it's ever been, uh, feeling very strong and empowered and certain that uh, Donald Trump will be uh, returning to office as president of the United States. So it's uh, compassion is never fashionable on the right. But here in the sh in, in the city of Chicago, it seems in short supply these days. Uh, we saw that with the people uh, turning up in mass in neighborhoods throughout the city to protest uh, proposals to put what uh, shelters for migrants uh, in their communities. It was very upsetting and disturbing reflection of where we are as a, a society and the inability uh, or the unwillingness of the city of Chicago to address this issue further exemplifies that point. And here's just one last thing I'll say before I move on to Miles on this one, and kind of relates to everything, how weird and twisted we are. I saw this headline in Crane Chicago Business uh, the other day. I'm calling it up right now. Uh, and uh, it's a headline. This proves a point I've been making for a long time now about uh, migrants coming to Chicago. Migrants coming to Chicago is following about 20 years where people have left Chicago, okay? In particular, black people. Uh, and the city's population has declined. And that's generally used uh, by Republicans uh, and the, uh, the civic downtown business communities as a sign that Chicago and Illinois are in decline. And Rauner and Kenny Griffin and all the other Republicans are saying it's because it's Democratic rules rule and the Tribune editorial board and Crane's editorial board and even the Sun-Times editorial board <clears throat> are always saying we should do more to reverse this trend. And at the same time, we turn our back on migrants coming to Chicago who would reverse the trend. Somehow they want to reverse the trend, but they don't want to reverse the trend. And the headline in Cranes just sums it all up. Census shows Illinois population is still shrinking, but there's a shred of good news. I'm like, I don't know what to do. You're saying that it's bad news that population is shrinking, and you call it a crisis when people come to town and you say, we can't house them. We have no room for them. There's like something wrong in the mentality of Chicagoans right now. Uh, we're not in a good place. That's my uh, opinion. Anyway, Miles Conflassen is joining me from editor extraordinaire, editor writer from In These Times. Uh, first of all, welcome back, Miles. Always good to see your smiling face. Oh, thank you uh, for having me, Ben. Always good to be here. All right. Uh, before we move on to the threat of the alt-right and uh, Colorado decision impact uh, upcoming election, your thoughts about uh, what I had to say at the opening 
do you think I'm uh, going too far in saying that Chicago is in a particularly cruel and heartless position, or do you share my sentiment? I think there's overwhelming compassion among uh, most people in the city for those that are going through hardship, and yet the political ability to you know, solve some of those issues and provide care uh, seems further and further from reach in many ways, um, because there's a lot of leaders that would rather stoke conflict and um, and raise tensions. And I think that's the kind of activity you've seen in some of these, you know, protests around the, the migrant shelters. When it comes to evictions, there are, you know, actually some solutions on the table that I think voters would embrace and hopefully will once they're uh, put in front of them, whether it's, you know, bring Chicago home, which is going to be on the uh, ballot um, in March, which would, you know, tax high in real estate to provide funding to tackle issues around homelessness and help to solve some of the, the, the housing crises we faced at banning rent control, you know, over, over, or overturning the ban on rent control rather that exists at the state level. That's been a multi-year campaign that organizers have been fighting for so that we can have some uh, regulation around rent increases, which is a huge uh, part of why these evictions are skyrocketing is because landlords keep raising these rents and, you know, with inflation and, and wage stagnation, you know, it's more and more difficult for especially people from lower income brackets to maintain um, adequate housing. And there's a lack of just like affordable and public uh, housing writ large across the city. You know, the our city's uh, public housing agency has done a terrible job of keeping up with the amount of the, the the wait list, the amount of people that are applying for housing. And meanwhile, you know, there, besides some, you know, some examples that are really heartening in places like the 35th Ward and the 33rd Ward, where we've seen large affordable housing complexes, even 100% affordable housing complexes go up. Those are the exception, not the rule. And I think that that really needs to change if we want to see um, a more compassionate housing system in the uh, Chicago, but I think most people want that. I don't think that there's some kind of like deficit of compassion going on right now. I think it's more that it seems harder to achieve those things. But I think once people see that, you know, and if we, you know, hope begets hope. And if we start to see there being some actual solutions being provided, um, I think that that could do go a long way in helping to change some of the um, underlying political dynamics at play here and hopefully provide a more, you know, just and equitable pathway for solving some of these deep-seated problems. I hope you're right. Uh, and uh, I had a little taste, I think I told you yesterday, I had a little all right, let's move on. And um, in, uh, can you hear me okay, Miles, now? I can hear you okay now. So uh, let's go on and move on to uh, the topics at hand. You raised the topic with me that uh, in these times, just tell a story about the rise of the alt-right. And I would just say it's taken over the Republican Party. We've done that for a while. And it seems in the wake of the Colorado ruling, temporarily removing uh, Trump from the presidential ballot to just fired up that base even further. So why don't we just start with your thoughts on the Colorado ruling, and then we'll move on uh, to the investigation in these times of the right or threat of the right in America. What are your general thoughts about the Colorado Supreme Court ruling 4-3 uh, that Donald Trump is ineligible to be in the presidential ballot because he was part of an insurrection? Yeah, I think that this is going to result in a Supreme Court decision. I think there's no doubt that um, this will go up to the Supreme Court to be litigated. Um, there, uh, it's a pretty surprising ruling in that you know that had already been ruled against by a lower court judge who did agree that uh, Trump had engaged in insurrection. But that in his role as president, he was not considered to be a officer of the United States who could, you know, somehow engage in insurrection in a point that would violate the 14th Amendment, or at least that he shouldn't be disqualified from, from office because of it, which is, I think in itself is pretty absurd. Because um, who else should the 14th Amendment apply to other than the president? It's kind of like the, the highest office in the land. But regardless, then that was sent to appeal, and that's why it went to the um, Colorado Supreme Court, who did rule that he is ineligible for the ballot. Now, that only applies right now to the primary ballot. And 
Colorado is, you know, a pretty safely blue state anyway. So it's not as if this, even if it did get to the general election ballot, um, that likely wouldn't have a huge outcome on the electoral college count, assuming Trump becomes the Republican nominee. But those are all kind of like far in the future political, you know, issues. The more immediate one is that this is it, it rightly seen, I think, um, and this is how Trump has um, responded to it as as an you know fairly anti democratic effort because it is passing on the responsibility of deciding who is going to be you know the Republican nominee and who's going to be you know the the leader of one of the two major parties to a court system rather than to voters. I do think that there was a time, you know, when. Trump could have been ruled ineligible to run for office. And that's immediately following January 6th. You know, had he been convicted, then he would he would be ineligible if actually Congress had taken action and and we would be in a very different political environment right now. But to have, you know, a few months before an election, a court come in and try to interject itself will rightly be seen by huge swaths of the country as an attack on um, democracy. And I think that that is the type of arguments that the Supreme Court is going to use when it rules, um, when it overturns this ruling. And that's why it could be a pretty broad, it could be a, a, a pretty narrow ruling and get a large amount of support, you know, maybe even more than the six um, right wing judges that, that sit on the court, you know, even you could get some liberals to support that argument too, that it's an attack on democracy, or they could go for a much um, a broader ruling with a smaller amount of justices, maybe six, maybe even five, you know, it could end up being a five, four ruling and they could actually try to wipe out this whole 14th amendment question entirely, you know, and that would, <clears throat> could even have implications with some of the cases that are, um, you know, coming to court soon They, you know, that's, that's quite a possibility. Somebody like Alito or Clarence Thomas or Somebody could write a ruling that would effectively exonerate Trump under any circumstances, you know, from violating any, you know, crime from committing the capital insurrection. And that would be a really dangerous precedent, I think, because then there would be really no forms of holding him accountable. So I think it's kind of a dangerous move in that way. I also, you know, see the irony of like trying to protect democracy through the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court has operated in such an anti-democratic fashion, whether it's overturning the right for reproductive freedom with um, getting rid of the Dobbs decision or back in 2000 with just handing the presidency to George Bush when, you know, that was clearly a case where it was a political <laughs> operation that was used to steal an election and the Supreme Court was the ones behind it. So I don't see the Supreme Court as being any great protector or arbiter of American democracy. But I think in this case, that's kind of where this is going to go. And, the, and what I'll also say is that Trump's already benefiting from this, right? Like it's, he's all, he always benefits from these attacks because he's been able to um, claim the role of, you know, he's, he's built victimhood into his whole identity and persona and claimed everything's a witch hunt. And this really does just feed into that. And he's already fundraising off of it, you know, and making a huge amounts of money uh, for his campaign. And meanwhile, probably, you know, growing in the polls, he's got an insurmountable lead effectively right now when it comes to Republican primary, and this will likely only further cement him in that position. And so we see these, you know, it's, it goes back to some of those, you know, quoted in one article about it, but uh, the, you know, Ray, uh, Roy Cohn was um, Trump's mentor. He's kind of a, you know, uh, conservative mastermind in, in many ways. And he always, you know, said that the way um, to just beat your enemies is to kind of make them show the worst versions of themselves, you know, or make them beat themselves. And I don't know if this is necessarily an example of that, but I think it's a kind of a self-own in some ways, because I think the outcome of this is only going to strengthen Trump's position, even though it was meant to be kind of a check on his power. Um, but what we shouldn't lose sight of is the fact that Fundamentally, this goes back to the, the the reality that Trump incited an insurrection in order to overturn a democratic election and therefore engaged in not just like, you know, inciting violence, but in purely anti-democratic authoritarian behavior. And he has shown no, you know, apology or whatsoever or, you know, willingness to acknowledge that that was wrong in any way. And because of that, I think we can only expect him to take the lesson that he should do more of that. 
you know, and I think that that's become a mainstay of his 2024 campaign is that he's promising that type of uh, authoritarian control and uh, dictatorial approach to the presidency. And that's he's primed his base to want that and to see him as the kind of strong man who can carry it out. And that's where I think it, it this really does reflect on this broader trend of uh, the, the, the growing new right and the, the changes that they've undergone um, through this era of mega Trumpism. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in that riff, and uh, we'll get to, we'll move over to we'll get to the authoritarian side of Trump uh, and how dangerous it is. But I just have to pause about the profound irony embedded in what you said. The ruling four to three against Trump in terms of a, it's a ballot access case. They're saying he's not eligible to be on the ballot because he participated in an insurrection uh, against the U.S. government. Uh, and it stip, stipulates in the 14th Amendment that if you participate uh, in an insurrection against uh, the government that you once represented, then you're not eligible to run for office against. In the freaking 14th Amendment, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and yet, that's perceived as anti-democratic. The insurrection, <laughs> hello, he was leading an insurrection against a democratically elected government. It doesn't get any more anti-democratic than that. Um, and yet, your point's well taken. You know, Donnie's going to be going around saying, I'm the victim. They're, it's anti-democracy. Uh, and... Uh, I gotta shake my head. I gotta laugh. I'll get your thoughts on this one. Uh, beyond that irony, uh, cruel irony, I'd say. Uh, you and I are from Chicago. I mean, ballot access issues come up every election in the city of Chicago. I, I, <laughs> I've seen, man, you. There's a whole industry of lawyers in Chicago whose job it is to make sure. An aldermanic candidate, a judicial candidate, a mayoral candidate, dot all the I's and cross all the T's to make sure that they stay on the ballot because they're all susceptible to being challenged. And miles in our lifetime, we've seen many candidates bounced from the ballot because they violated one technicality or another. And that's just considered like election law. In Chicago, we had a mayor, a mayoral candidate named Rahm Emanuel, who at one point was bounced off the ballot until the Supremes uh, put him back on the Illinois State Supreme, put him back on the ballot. So I, I just have to sort of smile at this, it, like the sobbing coming from MAGA, all that, but the self pity is just, it's just so hard to take sometimes. Like every single MAGA person would avail himself if they had to, of these ballot laws, Miles, to bounce their opponents uh, off the ballot, if that's what it took, okay? And now they're sobbing like the little babies that they are because an insurrectionist can't, <laughs> a court has ruled that an insurrectionist can't run for president. Uh, your response to all that? Of course, it's uh, purely, you know, gamesmanship. And if, you know, there was an opportunity on the other side to, like, remove Biden or any Democrats from from ballots that would be taken up immediately. So it's not that this doesn't have anything to do with principles. And on the other hand, like if this was to go through and somehow the Supreme Court did rule this to be constitutional, um, you would see you already have, you know, uh, uh, tons of other states have similar cases um, going, you know, in front of uh, judges to try to get Trump disqualified from their ballots. We would probably see every single state in the country try to, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd see litigation over this in order to try to bump him from the ballot. And that's because, you know, you, politics is politics. People are trying to make sure they're candidate their side wins and it's not generally like adhering to democratic principles i i personally and i'm, I'm comfortable with that because i think that we should have you know a, a, a contest of ideas in order to like determine who is the leader of our country and i think that it would it create much more uh rifts if we at this point just ruled trump incapable of being able to run at least when it comes to this type of 
weigh in with through through these you know uh, removing him from ballot stuff i think that that's you know not a great way to run elections in chicago either honestly because it's always you're right it just turns into this whole kind of cottage industry of like finding little technicalities and things i mean with rom i think it was about his residency right which probably why he actually didn't live in chicago he lived in dc had been obama's chief of staff so i mean if we if we, if we actually believe in the law of residency requirements then he probably shouldn't have been allowed to to run for uh, office, but he was able to get around that anyway because he had a team of lawyers and was able to t- take care of it. So I think it all comes down to it's kind of like power politics and money question again, and not really so much the the principles. Um, and speaking of that, I mean Eric Adams in New York obviously didn't live in you know uh, Brooklyn, and he was able to become which and, and New York has kind of residency requirements. He was able to get around that. So I think when people are have money on their side and lawyers on their side, they're able to get around these things anyway. And definitely when it comes to Trump, when he's, you know, got six hard right Supreme Court justices on his side, he's going to get his way. So I don't think that this is like irrelevant. I think that there's a lot to, to, to take from it. But fundamentally, I don't think this is going to change the, the the dynamics of the race other than really helping Trump in the in the primary and probably helping him raise a whole lot of money. I uh, when when you were when you were talking, I had a flashback, a football flashback. Bear with me, uh, political junkies, uh, to Patrick Mahomes, who was quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a pivotal play in a game against the Buffalo Bills, where uh, a referee called back a touchdown because the receiver who ended up scoring the touchdown was offsides, and Patrick Mahomes threw a hissy fit. Uh, and he said, yeah, he probably was offside. Well, I don't even know if he said that, but he goes, the referees should not decide the games. The players should decide the games. And I was like, well, either you're offsides or you're not offsides. Either you broke the rule or you didn't break the rule. It just, you want now to have no rules governing a football game. If, (laughs) is that what your position is, Patrick Mahomes? Uh, and, it's similar with Rahm and residency and Donald Trump and insurrection. There are rules. There are rules that govern ballot access. You got you got to live in Chicago or you don't have to live in Chicago. You either get to be an insurrectionist or the Constitution says you can't be an insurrectionist. And I think, uh, Miles, in the case of the Illinois State Supreme Court, to your point, your earlier point, I think it was exactly that point. They did not want to be the ones to kick Rahm Emanuel off. So they cooked up some legal gobbledygook uh, to justify keeping him on the ballot. And he got to be mayor uh, for two terms. Thanks a lot for nothing, Illinois State Supreme Court. Uh, Similarly, with Donald Trump, I agree with you 100%. There's no way the Supremes want to kick him off uh, the ballot. Uh, I don't believe, personally don't believe. Although, again, the strict, by the book, constitutionalists from the right uh, on the Supremes should rule against him. If they abided by their Scalian principles of a, going by the letter of the law, all of them, all five of them, six of them, including Clarence Thomas and Sammy Alito, should kick him off the ballot. And it should be the three Dems on the Supremes who vote to keep them on. It should be six to three, right wing, kicking them off the ballot. But they're going to throw their, open a window and throw their principles out the window <laughs> because they don't want to kick uh, Donald Trump off the ballot. So your thoughts on the Patrick Mahomes analogy, should rules always be followed or should we be like Patrick Mahomes and the coach too? The, the coach of the Chiefs was the, Andy Reid, who should know better, was like, no, just only call the rules when it benefits us, not when it goes against us. Your thoughts, Miles? Well, wasn't there also, you remind me of this, Ben, wasn't the previous, the Super Bowl, the previous Super Bowl was determined by an offsides call, right? That benefited the Chiefs. Isn't that, isn't that, was that against? (laughs) Was that that New England or Tampa Bay? That was like the whole thing. And so it's like, you know, and so it's like Mahomes should be the last person complaining about it because the Chiefs, you know, previously benefited from having a game decided by. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, go back and look at that. Yeah. By, by an offsides call. So, yeah, there's a certain kind of irony in that um, 
that as well. But yeah, of course. I mean, that's why we're supposed supposedly a nation of laws and, and regulations. We're just so used to those things being skirted when it comes yeah. to um, people in high positions of power, where there's complete double standards. I mean, that's why Donald Trump, who is you know has paid out so many suits in his life, you know, he's been able to get by unscathed and be Teflon Dom because he's just you know got tons of money and power and has never had to face accountability, which is why this is such a, you know, unique time in both his life and in the American political life, because we're trying, we're beginning to see some vestige of, you know, accountability being played out when it comes to some of these court cases. Um, The flip side of that is that once he's president, he'll likely be able to pardon himself and be able to escape any type of, you know, accountability. So that's his big gamble, right, is that the way to, you know, avoid any type of punishment, especially prison time, is to delay all of these cases that that are coming up and try to push them further and further back, hopefully till after at least the, the primary is wrapped up, if not the general election, and then be able to win the presidency and, you know, avoid any type of, um, you know, punitive measures or anything like that. And he's been successful at that throughout his entire life. So there's not much reason to think he won't. Whereas if you had any kind of petty criminal that's, you know, locked up for um, decades for, you know, just like one iota, the type of crimes that he's even like tacitly admitted to through 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 these payouts you know um not to say all the ones that he's you know settled out of court in other ways or just you know uh, had spent millions of dollars on lawyers to fight and drag up you know horrible details about the uh, people that have been um, putting claims against him so yeah it's sadly the reality of um, the american judicial system is um very uh two-faced when it comes to you know your 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 station in um in society and this is definitely a reminder of um, of why that is so problematic all right so let's get to uh what we can expect uh if donald trump gets to go back to the white house uh and i will read you a headline uh from the new york times which i took a picture of miles because uh this is a headline uh that um I, I don't know if I'd ever thought that a, a leading presidential uh, candidate uh, would see attached to. All right, here we go. Quote, Donald Trump criticized for echoing Hitler said that he's never read Mein Kampf, which, of course, is Hip, uh, Hitler's uh, autobiography. And um, wow. First of all, I'm not even sure. Uh, I had this conversation with uh, Monroe Anderson already uh, that it's true that he hasn't read Mein Kampf, uh, but he's been echoing uh, Hitler uh, to a large degree uh, over the last uh, few months or few weeks anyway, as he moves further and further to the right, further and further toward fascism, open expressions of fascism. Uh, and uh so uh, this gets to the heart of what you, uh, what uh, you, were, you were. I really would love to hear you talk about um, the rightward drift of the Republican Party. Go ahead. Well, I'm not sure that uh, Trump is a big reader in general, so I don't know if he's <laughs> dug deeply into Hitler's autobiography or any autobiography. But that does not mean he has not consumed, you know, some of the rhetoric, some of the language, and certainly some of the kind of political lessons that. Uh, those that they offer. It's not to, you know, um, degrade Trump's intelligence. I think clearly he's, you know, he's kind of a mastermind when it comes to uh, politics and, um, you know, building public support and things like that. Um, I just don't think he's like studying, you know, fascist texts necessarily. I think it's coming to him through other um, through other means. And the reason that is, is because there's a whole ecosystem now on the right of, um, this really deeply authoritarian and uh, a liberal politics that has become the new base of uh, the GOP. And I think that that's just a real, um, this is a good time to reflect on, on how that has happened. I mean, we at In These Times put out this whole uh, special themed issue um, that's out right now on the right wing, the kind of the, the, the far right movement in the U.S., and um, it provides some really helpful insights into um, where things are going and where they've moved. Because 
um, we've come a long way from, you know, the 20th century Republican Party, which, while certainly um, was conservative and right wing, um, was markedly different from today's GOP. And, you know, pulling from this uh, article that uh, Matt McManus wrote for us about the, the, the new right, it's helpful to look at how, especially when you look at somebody like Ronald Reagan, um, he really like looked to uh, this like three-legged stool concept of who the GOP base was and who to appeal to. And it was largely social conservatives, you know, people with um, conservative views on issues like, you know, maybe um, gay rights or feminism or, or things like that. Um, and then uh, the neoconservatives or, you know, kind of anti-communists when during Reagan's era and then kind of the war on terror types later on under people like George Bush and even under like John McCain and Mitt Romney. Um, that's kind of who they were uh, trying to appeal to. And then of course the free marketeers, the people that are just, you know, believe in the free flow of, of capital and just want less regulation. They want to see limited government when it comes to, you know, the daily life and, and things like that. And those, you know, that, that, that kind of was the makeup of the GOP base for a long time, but there was still, both major parties were believers in like a general liberal philosophy of like there should, people should have liberty and social rights and uh, there should be some level of equality in society. And people would speak to that. I mean, you did hear people like even McCain and Romney, even though they expressed, I think, you know, really reactionary views on a lot of things, they held to a, diff a, a standard of, you know, democracy and liberty and equality. And today we've seen just a massive shift. And I think that that's taken place through the institutions of the right changing um, and really allowing there to be um, attacks on democracy being more openly embraced. And um, the corporate backers of the Republican Party have been all completely willing to go along on this, uh, down this road with um, far-right uh, radicals that have really taken over the how the party views itself. And these days, you know, when you look at that kind of three-legged stool, it's much more um, the, the, the hard right and people who reject, like, universalism completely and um, they, they, they want more, like, traditional conservative democracies. Um, there's definitely, like, a far-right religious element that kind of, like, you know, what they call, like, trad-cath, like, traditional Catholic um, movement that wants to see a new, they don't want to just get rid of elites. They just want to replace the elites with like far right conservative elites that will do the bidding of, you know, evangelicals and, um, and just a, you know, a, a, a revanchist kind of reactionary political order. And then there's the, the, what they call like the Nietzschean right, or the, you know, the, the, this like, you know, online, it's considered kind of like the Groiper movement or things like that. Like people that really want to see a deeply authoritarian um, and like aristocratic vision of you, the, the, the U.S. Republic that's not really based on democracy at all, but rather um, if, if, you know, people like Curtis Yarvin and a lot of these, you know, thinkers, they promote like monarchism or like red Caesarism, they'll call it, you know, they want to sound kind of edgy and be like, we want to replace rule by the people with rule by strongmen. And Trump has been all more willing to embrace all three of those legs of this new kind of stool and say that this, this is the new majority. And because of that, because he has such... Um, power within the Republican Party, you've seen people, more traditionalists or, you know, cons traditional conservatives, in the, in, especially in Congress, try to stop this or, you know, speak out against it, but they've all eventually fallen in line and they've moved with Trump. And so now we're facing this new, like, post-liberal, like, illiberal party that is, it's not even, you know, there's not even basic values that are shared um, and has created this high level of conflicts and rifts and, and possibilities for, for violence. And 
they see the left, as they'd call it, you know, socialist, Marxist, cultural Marxist, whatever, as real enemies, not just like political opponents, but people that need to be defeated or jailed or put to death, you know, because of the threat that they pose to this way of life that is deeply, it's like, you know, there's Christian nationalism, white nationalism are all part of the fuel of this movement. Um, but it is has a very dark vision for where our society should go, and it's it's based in the past. It's based on this idea of like white male aristocracy that has pure rule over um, how we we form our society, and so it's deeply inegalitarian and you know against all principles of like liberty and solidarity. Um, but I do see that as what has become mainstream now. And when you hear Trump talk about things like embracing wanting to be a dictator or immigrants poisoning the blood of the nation, um, these are all speaking to the same type of, you know, Nick Fuentes, you know, style view of, of the world or Steve Bannon. And that's what's prevalent and um, seems to be on the upswing in the Republican Party. And I think that that's something that we all have to face when we talk about, as you said, like the possibility of a next Trump term, um, what the ramifications of that would mean. And so to my eyes, it's a pretty um, dark vision of our future. Do you think... Um having just painted that dark vision of the future. And I'm one, and I just want to point out again, the complete irony one more time. I cannot let this moment pass of Donald Trump lamenting the end of democracy because of this Colorado Supreme court ruling while advocating or embracing this totalitarian vision of what America should be. So let's just pause and think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, all right. Now uh, from your vantage point, uh, do you think uh, that uh, raising the um, the fear of this authoritarian movement uh, emerging with all the power that it would have if Donald Trump is elected president is a motivating factor to uh, defeat Trump? Do you think if, if that is a singular theme enunciated uh, by the Democrats, regardless of who their running uh, their candidate is, do you think that would drive American voters uh, to vote against Donald Trump? Or do you think it would be uh, largely overlooked uh, by American voters? I mean, I'm providing this more as like a political analysis versus like a political strategy, because I don't really see there currently being the type of pro-democracy movement in the country. There certainly is a pro-democracy movement. You know, there's a lot of groups that are um, fighting to, you know, stop racist gerrymandering and provide um, fight against voter suppression laws and provide ballot access. But it's not the same type of, you know, uh, like strong, cohesive movement that maybe existed during, you know, Jim Crow era, during, you know, civil rights era that was, you know, fighting for, for democracy. And I don't think that that you know, is exists in the same level or at least on the same frequency that it does on the right where they are really motivated mm -hmm. by um, anti-democracy because they've embraced after this last election, they've embraced this idea of being a minoritarian movement that still can, can, can still claim power. And they're not interested in, you know, winning democratic majorities they're interested in using any tools at their disposal in order to defeat their enemies and claim power and you know that's a harder thing to to combat when you know you're trying to defend liberal values and the idea of you know we should have an open debate about you know ideas and policies and platforms and provide the people an opportunity to to decide on them I, I mean, I have all kinds of thoughts on what I think would be motivating for, you know, people that want to defeat this type of Trumpist movement, um, this MAGA movement to that that should be run on by Democrats. The main thing is like a positive vision for society and what they would do over the next four years to accomplish that. Um, so it would be much more of a hopeful and like, you know, how do, how can we improve your lives? And that's really what I feel is missing, certainly from the Biden 2024 campaign is any proposals of what the next four years would look like and how it would improve people's lives. I think that's the most effective kind of messaging. Uh, but I think that the, all the dynamics of this um, next race are going to be unique because this is primarily because this is the first 
um, election, you know, presidential election, that we are going to have no longer have Roe v. Wade, you know, where that is going to be obviously, as we've seen in all these special elections, Dobbs has been an incredibly motivating factor for Democrats to turn out and go to the ballot. But it's also historically Roe v. Wade has been how that evangelical vote has been motivated to get out and vote for Republicans, because that is what has been, you know, the considered the kind of the most crucial um, goal is to eliminate Roe v. Wade and get rid of abortion protections. And the only way to do that is to get Republicans in office who are going to appoint right wing Supreme Court justices that are finally going to do that. Well, they did it, you know. So now, you know, there's talk of a national abortion ban and all these things, but we, you know, Trump certainly isn't calling for that. We haven't seen that openly stated by many of these Republican candidates. So I think that will probably have some impact on. Um, turnout as it pertains to like the evangelical vote, but we don't, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, I do think it's important to call these things out though, and, and, and name the, the, the deep threats that are posed to come up with strategies to fight it, not just in this election, because it's not going to go away after 2024. This is the result of like 50 years of institution building on the right, uh, moving, you know, building think tanks, building, you know, um, different types of uh, organizations that have been organs for these far right viewpoints of uh, flow. It's been uh, neutering labor unions so that we now have like the lowest, you know, union density in, in, in history, especially public sector unions, which traditionally were, um, you know, vehicles for progressive change and for maintaining them. It was taking over the courts, which has been a 50 year project so that now we have right wing jurisprudence kind of ruling the land. We're starting to see, you know, some changes with Biden's, uh, uh, selections to the courts, but by and large, you know, the right still runs the courts. And we've seen Republicans take over state legislatures, right? And then do this uh, hardcore gerrymandering where they're never going to lose power. And those are, you know, those aren't like democratic means. Those are just like strategy that the right mm -hmm. was able to carry out through a decades long project that has led to this position where even though you know, the if you look at any type of poll on the, the kind of policies that Democrats are running on versus Republicans, Democrats are far more, you know, favored on issue after issue after issue. And yet the right still retains this um, this power. And I think it's because it's a movement that is sees itself as um not in a majoritarian position that it's taking these more extreme steps and radical views and flirting with this kind of like fascist ideology is because you know, that's how you retain power. It's not going to be like they're going to win over the majority of the population. It's going to have to be kind of um, uh, bringing their, uh, you know, their most hardcore uh, followers into positions where they can uh, uh, rule. And that's, that's, I think that's what we're seeing. And that's, and, and in order to combat that, I think you need some kind of a strategy on the left to, you know, do a similar a project, a political project of gaining uh, political long-term political support. And that is not going to happen in one election cycle. But I think we'd definitely be going in a, a much darker direction if, you know, Trump is um, is president for the next four years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. See, and I uh, that's a good a good distinction that you made uh, a, a political analogy, a, a, a political analysis as opposed to a political strategy. Uh, you're analyzing where things are going as opposed to espousing a tactic to uh, defeat the, the creeping fascism that we're facing, which is what we're facing. Uh, and I, this is something I will be thinking about uh, a lot. I have been thinking about a lot and talking about it with guests uh, and trying to ascertain whether our country is about to make a stand against fascism. And uh, th we're not going to resolve this in this one conversation. This is an ongoing conversation I'll be having throughout the year with you and other guests, Miles. But I, I do believe that this is ultimately the issue on the ballot, regardless of who the Democratic nominee is. Like, are we going to take a stand for democracy? Uh, and it's so, I, I mean, the irony is so profound. Uh, again, going back to Colorado, where Democrats... I'm following are, are afraid uh, to uh, applaud the decision or champion the decision because they'll be they're worried of losing swing votes 
by looking anti-democratic <laughs> in the face of the one of the most profoundly anti-democratic movements our country has ever experienced. Um, wow. All right, let's move on uh, to unions. You mentioned them, labor, a little good news amidst this gloom and doom, sort of, maybe, I hope. Uh, one of the things about in these times is they routinely cover uh, the union movement in this country, the labor movement in this country in a way, really, very few publications do. So uh, you mentioned to me briefly about the UAW success. You've talked about that in the past and how it may be an indication or trends uh, in the labor movement going forward. Why don't you elaborate a bit? I think the what we've seen in, over the past year across the labor movement broadly has been really where there have been green shoots of, of hope for people that believe in building a different kind of progressive vision of society. It hasn't come so much from Congress, you know, where we've had, um, yeah, divided government um, or even from the White House. Um, although, you know, Trump, uh, Biden's NLRB has been helpful in some ways and um, allowing for some flourishing of, um, of labor activity and new union organizing. Um, but the uh, primary, uh, you know, union that's been leading this fight has been the United Auto Workers. And we saw that with um, this recent stand-up strike that um, went against all big three auto companies. And we saw the massive gains. I've talked about those in previous episodes, but, you know, 25% raises, ending of tiers, um, control over workplaces. The, the one really important element is especially at GM, um, and to some extent at Stellantis, getting electric vehicle battery plants covered under the national contract, which is going to be critical when it comes to, you know, the, uh, a just transition, like moving over to renewable energy when it comes to automobiles and making sure that those jobs are are union jobs as well. Um, but beyond those contract uh, victories that, that happened uh, by the UAW, um, we also saw them announce this new campaign to organize basically all the non-union automakers in the country. And that includes Tesla, of course, where there's already been in Fremont, California, uh, a, a union campaign begun, but also places like Toyota and Hyundai, you know, other big car makers that would cover, you know, 150,000 auto workers, which is the amount of currently covered under the country it would be effectively doubling the number of members in the auto industry. That's the kind of ambition that I think we need to see from more unions and union leaders is speaking out about how we can't be about retrenchment or like, you know, uh, you know, protecting gains. It has to be about expansion because union membership keeps dwindling. And at the same time, we've seen interest in unions really rise. Another thing I'll point out about the UAW is that they had um, earlier this year, they had their first like one member, one vote election, democratic elections. And that's how Sean Fain came into uh, leadership and became president is because they provided dem democracy for their workforce. And they had this reform caucus that ran on a much more kind of um, pro-worker, pro-rank-and-file vision for the union. And it worked, I mean, by all degrees. I mean, he's incredibly popular. They've won all these successes. They're, you know, going against these companies. If you read, like, any, even, like, in the business press, even the analysis is that the UAW won these things. And they're taking very principled moral stands, like calling for a ceasefire in Gaza right now, you know? And that's, I think, a, a critically important role of unions. And you, if you look historically, you know, throughout American history, unions have been on the forefront of calling for peace and against war, especially when we've seen... That's, I mean, you know, the level of kind of bloodthirst and genocidal activity that's uh, of, of the type we've seen going on um, in Gaza being carried out by the Netanyahu regime. That's the kind of, you know, vocal, outspoken role that I think unions can play beyond just um, fighting for their members, because that is part of like protecting the working class more broadly is fighting against the war machine and making sure that, you know, we are a society that's built on peace and justice and equality, not on um, fight, uh, fighting foreign wars abroad. Um, but UAW is not the only union, of course, to have success. If you look back at this past year, there was the Teamsters uh, fight, which was, you know, over 300,000 workers came to the verge of a strike at UPS. And um, one historic contract gains because of that. And similarly, a reform movement won power there with Sean O'Brien and the um, 
members of the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, uh, changing leadership there. Of course, there was the Hollywood strikes. Um, we saw both both the actors and the writers who won huge gains and you know were able to kind of have some protections, especially around artificial intelligence, um, which will be incredibly important moving forward. Um, and nurses, you know, we see the, so the Kaiser Permanente strike. So I think we really like looking back at this year, we saw, I think the number, I think it was double the number of workers went on strike this year versus last year. And last year was basically double of the year before. So we've wow. seen this kind of like exponential growth yeah. of labor activity happening and not just like organizing, but taking the most extreme action that unions can take of withholding their labor to, um, to demand, um, justice on the job and better protections. The area we have not seen that move yet, though, is like new membership growth. And that, I think, will require massive investments of resources in getting organizers to go into all these places because people want a union. You know, we we know that, you know, we've, we've been covering labor stuff for a long time. It's like you talk to workers, they want unions. It's just a matter of like fighting an anti-labor law regime that exists in the United States where employers basically call the shots and can throw their employees into these captive audience meetings. And and then even when you do win a union at places, this is what we've seen at Starbucks and even at Amazon, getting a first contract is nearly impossible, mm -hmm. if not active, actually impossible, unless it's ordered by the government because all these companies seek to do is just delay 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 and then target the workers who are involved in the union campaign and hopefully get them to leave the company and you know and so because of that we need to change labor law in this country uh, but we also need to take advantage of this newfound interest and excitement around labor unions i mean the approval of unions the interest in unions is highest rate in decades right now so if now is not the time i don't know when there is to like really build off of that and um, and as i said like you you know, unions really are the vehicle of like fighting inequality and bringing social change. That's been their role historically. And you, that's not as prevalent in U.S. society because so few people are union members. But I think the more we see movement uh, in that direction of, of unionizing more and more workers, we're going to see those benefits accrue and we're going to see that reflected politically as well. Mm. They haven't always been at the forefront. I can recall in my lifetime uh, union resistance uh, to try to force, uh, let's say, Dr. King to back off, off from his opposition uh, to uh, the Vietnam War uh, and to uh, uh, isolate himself uh, from certain activists who were uh, a threat viewed as because uh, of their alleged communist connections. And then in the late 70s and in the 80s, uh, the um, uh, the established union leadership in this country joined forces with the neocons. Uh, and the Ronald Reagans uh, and the Gene Kirkpatrick's of the world uh, in a sort of like a fierce anti-communism. So it, it's been a slow, <laughs> what am I saying? It's uh, There's like a step forward, a step back. And uh, I guess it's a topic for a much larger uh, conversation to have. But your basic point is, I think, accurate that uh, a strong labor movement in this country uh, kind of... Um, will lead to more progressive across the board. Um, I mean, that's the, that, that yeah, that's the, I mean, that's how you combat corporate power is, is through having people, you know, units of people put together that can bargain with those corporations and force concessions from them. Otherwise you're just going to see this rapacious form of capitalism that's unfettered continue you know, unabated. And that, and that's what we have been seeing now for, for decades. You're completely right about like caveats, especially about corrupt union leadership, you know, allying with right-wing forces in many cases. And not to say like that there weren't rank and file members that also held reactionary views or were willing to saddle up again to fight against, you know, communism and things like that. But by and large, I think, you know, when you look at the, the, the role of unions when it comes to those questions of like inequality and fighting for workers' rights, um, there's plenty of, you know, exceptions where they've not always, you know, been actively or adequately fighting for those things. But that is like the main tool that has been successful 
in in the past. It's hard to point to any other like actual institution, I think, that's been as successful. So I think that that still provides some of the better hope when it comes to like how we and and that speaks to like, you know, what I said before about the importance of like having reform caucuses within unions and people Mm -hmm. having these internal union fights to try to make their unions more progressive and more willing to, you know, stand up for people. And and we're seeing that because it's not just the UAW that's called for a ceasefire, for example. You know, the UE has the head of the president of the National Education, National Educators Association has called for it. Like we've seen a lot of, you know, unions step up in this way, which is a lot further than we've seen a lot of our democratic politicians go, even, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to the, um, the that particular issue. Yeah. I think there's there's there, 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 there's points of pressure, at least if they have some democratic elements to move yeah. those institutions to the left as well. Absolutely. And that's why you mentioned the NLRB. Uh, guarantee. <laughs> we'll leave it here. Uh, guarantee you Republicans take over. It's a whole different National Labor Relations Board, a whole different set of uh, rulings and uh, positions that they take. Uh, and whatever gains we've seen over the last four years or so will really be pushed back, uh, particularly so bizarre when you think like uh, at Starbucks or Amazon uh, or Tesla, but not so much Tesla because Starbucks and Amazon, their leadership kind of likes to try to view themselves as sort of progressive minded on a lot of issues. And uh, they have bizarre reactionary attitudes about a unionized workforce. Uh, That is for sure. All right. We have run out of time completely. So I'm going to ask you uh, every time Miles is on the show, he gets one sports related question. Uh, And uh, folks, he doesn't get to exercise this side of his brain that much uh, in his day work uh, as editor and writer. Uh, for in these times, but he's a passionate Chicago Bulls fan. And as every passionate Chicago Bulls fan knows, right now the Bulls are facing a huge decision. Do they keep or get rid of Zach Levine? Uh, They're highly paid, uh, well, he's supposed to be the superstar. Uh, And uh, so, Miles, in your humble opinion, are the Chicago Bulls better off keeping Zach Levine or trading Zach Levine? At this stage, I mean, looking at the recent record without Zach in the lineup, I think it's pretty clear that this particular makeup of the squad has benefited from his absence because it's a lot for more ball sharing. It's a lot for better passing that you look they're, they're still one of the slowest teams in the NBA, but over this period, they've had some of the highest number of passes. The ball is moving and that um, creates a whole different type of offense. And I think we've been able to see the benefits of that. The caveat is like, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the roster, right? Like if you, if you're moving a whole number of pieces, then that could change the whole dynamic. But if it's a matter of just kind of finding a new home for Zach Levine, which certainly seems like he is ready for, you know, I I don't disbelieve he has a foot injury, but the way, you know, he was hanging out with the clutch sports (laughs) hat the other day, you know, on the court side, he's, he's ready to go. So I think that just might make for a better, you know, situation. I will say though, he's on the sidelines, like cheering on his teammates. He's not like sulking somewhere. And I got to like, you know, go share some love and respect for, for that. I don't think he's, you know, going about this in a terrible way, but it does seem like this is probably time for a change. And if you listen to the, the bulls management, it sounds like that's all they really want to do. They want to keep, Caruso and DeRozan for now, which is, you know, a lot of analysts will say that's boneheaded moves. But you, when 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 they've when they've talked, AK and them, they seem to like say what they mean. And so, if so, you know, if you can get some trade packages for Levine and this team, and Kobe White keeps balling out and playing like an All Star or at least a Most Improved Player, I mean, he's definitely in the running for for that right now. That could uh, lead to, you know, a, a, a scrappy team that maybe can get in the, at least that play in picture. And then who knows, you know, might get some playoff games here in Chicago. That'd be yeah, nice. might get some. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, no, that, uh, you know, where I, I stand on this one, uh, I can't stand tanking. I can't stand what Detroit, those poor Detroit Piston fans, teams lost, I think, 24 games in a row, some horrific number. And, uh, no, that game when they beat Milwaukee a couple of weeks ago, that that'll get me through two weeks. I was uh, at that game. I was at too, that man. Game. You were at that. Where were you sitting? Overtime win. I mean, up in 300, three hundred three. Yeah, me too. Yeah. That was a <laughs> blast, both, though. I was having oh, the UC was rocking. It was like uh, like the old days. 
it looks like the old days. So, uh, all right, Miles, I want you to have a great Christmas, a happy new year. We'll see you in January. We'll continue to fight. And just want to say at the end of this year, thank you very much for being such a dear friend to me and my show all these years. He's always come on, answers all the questions. No ducking and no dodging from Miles. <laughs> uh, Kemp Lassen. So keep up the good work. And thank you very much for being such a supporter of my show. Back to you. Always my my pleasure. Happy to be here. And very glad that the Ben Jarofsky show is alive and well going into 2024. And, and not missing forward to a great year. AC Green of, of podcast. We don't take a day off, okay? <laughs> We're just talking about that with producer Chris. Uh, so Miles will be back with us uh, in January. He basically runs on about once a month, and then we drop the show again. So effectively, he's on twice a month. So Miles Kempflas and dear friend of the show. In these times, folks, uh, check it out. Uh, we didn't get in any of their Gaza coverage because uh, there were so much other things on our agenda today. But they... Uh, they do a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of great work on that subject as well. All right, Miles Kaflasa, thank you very much. I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. I think Miles agrees with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And don't forget, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, read columns from Ben Jarofsky, and other great reader writers, all at chicagoreader.com. If you want to follow Ben on Instagram, that's easy, at Benny J Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow The Ben Jarowski Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.